Hey, y'all. Did you know that 97% of U.S. wineries are small and that 85% are classified as very small? That's why it's so hard to find your favorite wines and discover new small producers in stores. Somley wants to make it easier for wine lovers to discover, hear the story, and shop from producers of all sizes. The best part? You can bring the winery experience home with orders delivered right to your doorstep. It's easy and free to support your favorite wineries. At Somley.com, you can search for and favorite wineries, give wineries great reviews, and shop from wineries you won't find in retail. While you're there, you might discover some new ones to visit or even a new wine club to join. Check out Somley.com. Looking for a custom crush partner? Bending Branch Winery offers full-spectrum bend-to-bottle service. The experienced winemaking team specializes in red wine production. Advanced extraction options are available to get the most out of red wine grapes. Join Bending Branch and its clients in producing highly awarded wines. For more information, email Dr. Bob Young at bob at bendingbranch.com. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 62, and today my guest is John Leahy, the winemaker at Becker Vineyards, one of the first and one of the largest wineries in Texas. We take a look back at some of the most memorable wines he's made, his extensive travels, and what's next for Becker Vineyards. But first, the Texas wine news. And I've got a last-minute ticket giveaway for Toast of Texas. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Lana Bordelot has yet another new article in Forbes.com that covers wine women in Texas. This is part of a series that she's done for Women's History Month. Her final article is called Women and Wine, the Texan Torch Carriers. While the first article profiles the women who pioneered the industry, this article showcases the women that are carrying the torch forward. She writes about Karen Bonarigo, Chief Administrative Officer and Co-Owner at Messina Hoff Winery, Julie Culkin, CEO and Co-Founder at Pedernales Cellars, and Roxanne Myers, President of Lost Oak Winery. The article also names Susan Johnson, owner and co-winemaker at Texas Heritage Vineyard, as an up-and-comer. I'm wondering if Lana listens to This is Texas Wine, because I've had all these women as guests on this podcast. 750 Daily recently published a feature article about how viticulture programs are shaping the wine industry. Author Shelby Vitek's article, How Viticulture Programs Drive Success for Emerging Wine Regions, has a strong focus on what's going on here in Texas. It also mentions programs in Colorado, Washington, Virginia, and Minnesota. But the main focus of the article is on Texas, and it highlights Maureen Qualia, a fourth-generation Texas winemaker who went to California to learn winemaking in the early 2000s. I bet you've heard of Valverde Winery, the only Texas winery that survived Prohibition. That's her family's place. While Maureen was studying and working in California, the Texas wine industry was growing from about 50 wineries in 2005 to 270 when she returned home in 2013. In that time, Texas Tech University's Viticulture and Enology Department grew from a two-year viticulture certification program 
in 2007 to a four-year undergraduate degree in viticulture and enology. She said, my intention in going to California was always coming back to participate in the growing Texas wine industry. If it wasn't for our local programs, I don't think we would have seen this exponential rise in quality that we're seeing. The article says that Texas Tech offers the only four-year degree for viticulture and enology in the state, and that program started in 2009. It also offers non-academic certificate programs. They've got a viticulture concentration that was launched in 2007 and also a winemaking concentration that was launched in 2012. And these are both geared toward second career people. They've had well over 1,000 students complete these programs, which is a sizable group of wine professionals who are surely shaping Texas's industry. Maureen goes on to say, we can't produce enough students to fill the needs of the local industry. Every single one of our former students has a job in Texas wine at this point. The article doesn't mention any of the other educational programs across the state, but they're there from Grayson College to Texas A&M to the newcomer Palo Alto College in San Antonio. Oh, and I almost forgot about Schreiner College in Kerrville. In Texas, we are rich with opportunities to learn about wine. And speaking of education, there are more opportunities than ever to get wine certifications under your belt at Texas wineries. The William Chris Wine Company is offering not only WSET courses, those are the Internationally Recognized Wine and Spirit Education Trust classes, but also a specific Texas Wine Ambassador certification. That's the one that I took back in January. And if you're listening from a bit further south, you can also earn the WSET Level 1 at Mayak Vineyard and Winery in Schulenburg. This is offered in conjunction with the Texas Wine School. So folks, go take the classes, take the tests, and get the pins. There are several wine schools across the state where you can continue your WSET learning journey with higher level courses, but it's pretty cool that you could get started on your wine education at a Texas winery. This summer, I'm taking another trip up to the Finger Lakes of New York to help judge the 23rd annual Finger Lakes International Wine Competition. If you've been listening for a while, you'll remember that I judged last year, too, and got to share a bunch of Texas wines during a presentation for my fellow judges. During that competition, Texas wineries won quite a few medals. These include Spicewood Vineyards. They won a best-in-class for Tempranillo. Pedernales Cellars and Ron Yates won a platinum for Tempranillo. There were also Tempranillo's awarded double gold from Cristoval and from Ron Yates. And Sandy Road also won a gold for Tempranillo. I could go on. So yes, Texas Wines did really well in 2022 and in 2021 also. These judges apparently like some really bold Texas wines. And no, I was not a judge at the Tempranillo table. So I'd recommend that you check out this competition and feel extra good about entering because it's one of the largest charitable competitions in the world. The competition and other events held locally all benefit children with cancer. The competition actually takes place at the summer camp where children with cancer can attend free of charge. Check out the entry process by clicking on the link in the show notes. All entries need to be received by May 12th. Soon I'll be heading for the Austin area where I'll be attending the annual Wine and Food Foundation's Toast of Texas event on Sunday April 23rd. And thanks to Texas wine growers, I've got a couple of sets of tickets to give away. If you'd like a pair of tickets, please email me at texaswinepod 
at gmail.com, and those will be first come, first serve, and I'll get you squared away. This is for the main event, which takes place from 2.30 to 5 p.m. Again, it's on April 23rd at Star Hill Ranch in Bee Cave. That main event features a whopping 30 wineries, and they're lining Main Street with tasting tables. It's a sip-and-stroll type event that also features a silent auction, yummy food, and lots of opportunities to chat with winemakers and winery owners. Now, the VIP event that precedes the main event is sold out, and while I appreciate all of your emails, I do not have any additional tickets to share for that event. But if you already have tickets to the VIP event, you'll be tasting my top five Texas wines and hearing from five fabulous winemakers. First of all, Claire Richardson is pouring a wine called Luada. At least I hope I'm saying that correctly. It's a white Rhone-style blend from Uplift Vineyard. That's the new wine brand from William Chris, and it's a Marsan Roussan blend. Abastris winemaker Mike Nelson will be pouring next, and he's bringing Stello, which is another style of white Rhone that features not only Marsan and Roussan, but also Claret Blanche and Picpoul Blanc. Moving on to the red wines, Barbara Laquona from Sibonet Cellars is another one of my picks, and she'll be pouring Travis, which is a GSM blend. That's Grenache Syrah and Mouved. And yes, all three of the first three wines are Rhone blends. Next, Spicewood Vineyards is on my list, and Ron Yates will be presenting. He's pouring the Independence. It's a Bordeaux-style blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Petit Verdot. And finally, we're ending on a sweet note. Liz Kuhn, assistant winemaker at Wedding Oak Winery, will be discussing their late harvest Riesling. It's the only single varietal wine in the bunch, and it's a sweet wine. And basically, every time I've tasted it, I wonder why I'm not drinking wines like that more often. All five of these wines are delicious, and I am thrilled to be able to share them with this VIP gathering. So congratulations to these five wines for making my list. Now, all the attendees at Toast of Texas will have the opportunity to order these wines through a partnership with HEB, but only those attending VIP will be tasting these VIP wines on Sunday. So Wine and Food Foundation hosts cool events like this one all year long. You really should join the organization if you haven't already. I'll have a table there at the main event where I'm dispensing free Texas wine recommendations and advice and giving out some cute Texas wine postcards. So please come say hi and email me if you want those free tickets to the main event. They're yours thanks to the generosity of Texas wine growers. Find links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. This is the time in the podcast when I ask you to do something for me. And there are a couple of things that you can do for me today that are free and help grow the podcast. One is to share the podcast with others. You can do that on social media by tagging Texas Wine Pod in your stories and posts. Thanks to Morgan Perry for her recent Instagram sharing that she was drinking Toraldigo. And she was inspired to do that after hearing my recent podcast episode with Colisee Sellers. How fun is that? You can also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and leave a few remarks. This is especially beneficial to me now that my new website has a reviews section that pulls directly from both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can even leave a review right on the podcast website. Thanks to my most recent reviewers, Jay Wett Photographer, who gives the podcast five stars and says, The best wine podcast. So great to have a podcast promoting Texas wine and our industry. Love everything Shelly is doing to promote what we have to offer in Texas. 
Thanks, y'all. And now it's time for our interview. John Leahy has run one of the biggest winemaking operations in the state at Becker Vineyards. He's not from here. In fact, he was busy making wine in California when he was lured to Texas by the Beckers. An 11 harvest with Becker Vineyards. He's made a lot of wine. He's made some changes. And he's made a lot of jokes. Here's our conversation. In preparation for our interview, mm-hmm. I, of course, did a Google search on your name. <laughs> and one of the first things that came up is Becker Vineyards' new winemaker arrives for harvest. Date, July 2012, by Jennifer McGinnis. Yes, yes. So you've been here yeah, so a I actually, uh, Yes, I actually started on the 4th or 6th of June that year. So... Um, and every year I get a reminder on our little payroll thing, your anniversary is. So, uh, but yeah, I started in June of 2012. So this, uh, this past harvest was my 11th harvest here at the winery. What on earth convinced you to come to Texas? Because you were making wine in California and uh-huh. had been for a while. Yep. Yeah. Did- um, well, the speed limit here was a lot higher than in California. So it that's was true either, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I was actually recruited for the job. Dawn from uh, Benchmark Consulting. She's the uh, principal partner there. It's a, uh, a winery or wine industry headhunter, you know, executive position headhunter. And she called me one day, and I met her off and on throughout the years. And she called me one day, and she's like, I got your phone number from your friend Brian. And I was like, I don't any have a friend Brian anymore. <laughs> so, no, it was funny. But um, I, anyway, she, uh, at, at first I was like, you know, I, I think that's great. You know, she goes, I understand you have family in Texas. And I'm like, yes, I'm familiar with the area. Um, but then she was like, well, you got to interview. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. I'm, you know, in the middle of St. Helena. My office was my back patio at the time. And, you know, a mile and a half from my job site kind of deal. So she finally convinced me to take some wines. The Beckers shipped out a bunch of wines that they were making at the time. And they asked me to pair them with like varietals or like uh, styles from the immediate area. And I did. And, uh, and then I did a, a recording much like this, you know, pre-recorded, you know, where Don would ask me some leading questions and then just record my responses. And I would discuss each wine. And on the morning that we were getting ready to do that, my wife was heading out the door for work and she's like, um, <clears throat> how honest are you going to be? I was like, well, I'm going to tell the truth. And she just looked at me like, she's like, so you really don't want the job? Uh-oh. I was like, I'm not mean. You don't have to be mean to be honest. No, she was teasing me. So my wife has the same sense of humor that I do. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was actually, it was wonderful because the only um, wines that I tasted that had faults in them weren't horrible faults. They were pretty much technical faults, you know, that, that, that could be readily rectified with, uh, um, one experience or two, you know, if you've had that happen to you before, and trust me, I've probably made every mistake you could possibly make. Um, the, uh, the, what intrigued me was the quality of the fruit that was shining through. That really was the reason I came out here. I was like, wow, this is going to be fascinating. So, Do you think the Beckers were expecting you to have anything critical to say? I, I think they were fully prepared for it, but Dr. Becker has an extraordinary palate. If you're going to say something critical, you better be able to back it up because he can dive as deep as anybody else can into it. So, and that, that I've learned over the last decade. He does not mind an honest opinion and he does not want you to hold back. You know, he wants you to be forthright, you know, be honest and stuff, but, you know, and be prepared to have a good argument, you know, which is a lot of fun. 
So, um, and of course, I can go all of almost 15 minutes without being a, a, a smart aleck. So. <laughs> I can take it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned that during the interview that you were interviewed by many growers. Oh my gosh. Oh, that was, that, that was <laughs> just unbelievable. The first thing we did is the then general manager, uh, uh, Brett, who was the general manager when I first came on board, uh, took me on a tour of the High Plains and here in the Hill Country of all of our growers at the time. Every single grower grilled me. Like it was the final job interview for the CEO position of a multinational corporation. I mean, it was, um, it was hilarious. And I, by the end, it was four days, four very intense, long days to get back home. And I'm like, I don't know if I even have enough energy to have a cocktail. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they like what they heard though. I I suppose so. And I got a lot of uh, good natured jabs being from California. You know, it's where I was born. You know, I'm truly a Californian. Um, And there are a lot of very uh, interesting takes on what it is to be a Californian, especially here. But uh, there was not one rude grower that I dealt with at all, but they were not going to let it slide that I was from California. So it was kind of fun. Well, everyone, I'm sure, wanted you to, <clears throat> to succeed. If you were the person chosen, they wanted you to succeed. Because I think Becker's uh, success is, is so good for our industry as one of the biggest wineries in the state. It, it, it is good for the industry. But everything that's good for the industry is happening right now. I mean, we have got some incredibly good, talented people in our industry currently. We've got great fruit you know, you cannot make great wine without really good fruit. You can make really bad wine with any quality of fruit, you know. Um, but if you're going to make truly great wine, you need good fruit. And these growers, um, probably some of the most conscientious, hardworking people I have met in the industry in the last 25 years. And it seems like in the decade that you've been here, a little over a decade, mm-hmm. uh, fruit quality has, has increased. I know oh, technology yes. has. and Absolutely. How's it different now, going out to the High Plains? Well, it doesn't change overnight, first of all. Any, any real true quality differential that you're going to make, it's going to take you know, anywhere from three to seven years to, to show a true shift. So they were really starting on it well before I got here. You know, it was, um, I think the analogy I used with Jennifer in that first interview was like, it was like being the backup quarterback, the star guide you know, gets injured and you're getting ready to go into the playoffs. I mean, all the hard work's been done and you just got to run it run that home run back. You know, you've got to get it done. It wasn't easy, but it, you really see the quality there. Where they choose to plant, what varietals they're planting, knowing more about their soil, their structure, and then working with the wineries. And the, I think probably the biggest improvement was there wasn't a grower we were dealing with that didn't want to know how and why we were making the wine, the decisions that were going behind. Why did you choose to use this yeast or you know, temperature or, you know, why did you put it in this barrel? What did you do? Why, you know, they, they were very, very interested. And we've got a lot of good growers who are running their own labels now too. So it, um, and you can't, it, it, it's probably one of the few industries that you really cannot stress the fact that the more wineries, the more variation on the fruit from the same vineyard, the more choices people have, the better it is overall. You get to see what creativity does. You get to see somebody's view on what this cab should be like from this vineyard. You've got three or four people doing the same thing, uh, which is really important. In winemaking, you have a chance every single year to <laughs> knock it out of the park or something else. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, let's not go into that something else. <laughs> exactly. I, it, I get butterflies every year right before harvest, and I get uh, become the nervous Nelly, and I it, because the only thing I can think of is like, how oh, am I going to mess this up? What am, I, am I making the right call? Am I doing? You know, I've said we're picking tomorrow, though, no matter what, and then I go home and I'm like, oh God, did I just mess that up? <laughs> it's like, so. Um, but yeah, you do. You have every every year. You have a different set of circumstances. Mother Nature throws you curveballs left and right. Um, you have uh, new varietals that you're trying out, or a new vineyard, or you know you've decided to do a, a barrel trial or a new yeast trial or something just to see if you can accentuate something that you really want. And the idea there is, you know, taking one of our reserve cabernets, for example, the uh, um, Canada family vineyards up in Plains. We um, we get about forty to fifty tons. Cabernet from them, and I'll break that. It calls comes in the same day or two, you know, two truckloads basically. So we'll break that up into six different lots of Cabernet from same vineyard, same block, and we'll um, try different yeast, do different protocols on it. I end up with six distinct Cabernets that I can then back blend together, still be vineyard designate, still be Cabernet, you know. But the decisions made during, you know, fermentation and then aging vary, so that gives you a good palate to choose from. You have a lot of labels, a lot of SKUs, SKUs, uh, yeah, however, SKUs I don't know yeah. what you call them. You have a, a lot of SKUs at yes, Becker. We do, indeed. And as a winemaker, especially one that is, uh, shall we say, slightly focused, challenged, um, I love to jump from project to project. Uh, it is wonderful. You Not just SKUs, but we, we deal with 24, I could, I'm probably going to get this wrong, 24, 25 different varietals all the way around. We've got Rhone varietals. We've got Italian varietals. We've got Spanish varietals. We've got Bordeaux varietals, you know, um, all Venefra. Um, and it's wonderful because I can make the, some of my favorite things are some of these off the wall blends that we come up with for some of our standard uh, labels, like our uh, La Quattro Stagione labels, which are the four seasons. So I get four different blends a year to play with. Um, but then I also have some absolutely fantastic fruit like Merlot. It's one of my favorite fruits to deal with. Um, Merlot has got a velvet and a development and a palate. When it is fully ripe and fully expressive, it's just a gorgeous thing. It blends so well with Cabernet and Petit Verdot and Malbec and Cab Franc. You know, you've got the, the five of the six major Bordeaux varietals there. Um, so it, it is a lot of fun, but it is a, um, an organizational nightmare sometimes as far as I'm concerned. Like I've got to keep those listed out. I've got to know what SKUs we have to develop when we're running out, you know, backdate that, you know, I've got to get this ready by then. So there's a lot of administrative detail that goes into it as well as the creative end. Do you have a big winemaking team supporting you? I do. I have probably one of the best teams in the state. I'm not, I'm fully proud of the people I work with and I'm very happy to work with them um, because these, these folks can, hold an argument. They can tell you, this is why we should change this the way we're doing it. Why did you do this? And then, and I'll counter with that sounds good, but I want it done this way. And this is why. And then they're like done on it. Perfect. But you know, I've, uh, the core of my uh, team has been the same since I arrived here. So, um, we've got about, uh, uh, eight people in the, uh, cellar, uh, not including myself or the assistant winemaker. So 10, 10 people total. And then I've got a, a great vineyard team out there. I've got a vineyard manager and five guys out there. Um, and uh, it, it is important to have that. It, it, you know, um, winemaking is not a spectator sport. It is, uh, it is a team, and team uh, effort completely straight across the board. 
I get to take all of the glamour at times and all of the responsibility too. Um, and sometimes I am the person responsible for those. <laughs> Maybe the blame on, on occasion. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot to keep straight. So I'm glad you've got some support. You had shared some statistics uh, on a previous podcast that you did. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think it was a couple years old, um, but you talked about the case production here. Is that something you want to share again? Sure. Share current uh, we, stats? Yeah, we're, we're Moss Manos 100,000 cases. So we, there are a couple of years that we, we went over that and a couple of years that were slightly under that. And that wholly depends on the fruit for that year and whether or not we had a very good harvest, you know. Um, after my first year here in 2012, which was an outstanding harvest, uh, and, and uh, we were at, at that point in time, I think uh, we were around 60 or 70,000 cases. I'd have to go back and look to get the exact number, but roughly right around there. Um, and we, we were on a growth uh, projection for, for several years, but in 2013, we had that late spring freeze that, um, you know, we lost 85% of the fruit straight across the state. So, you know, we... Uh, came in with very little fruit for the 2013 year and then 2014 was affected too anything that affects the grapevine this year will affect the next year's fruit as well um we came in with about 50 percent of projected uh contract you know the contracted volumes and 15 we were back on track and then 15 16 17 18 and 19 were all excellent on on point years and then in 19 we had a a the the two-pronged tragedy here was in uh, september we hit some record highs, 103, 105 degrees in the high plains, and the the uh, uh, respiration cycle on that plant shuts down. It just goes into a dormancy, you know, a mild dormancy, and you're waiting. The sugars aren't developing. Everything's just in, you know, holding in uh, kind of a suspended animation. Um, then a couple weeks later, you know, within ten days, it starts the temperatures start cooling off, starts producing again. Less than a month later, the second stress that happened was right before Halloween. They went from the 70-degree high to a 23-degree overnight low. And that um, killed off some of the next year's buds. It damaged some of the vines. Uh, It was funny because it was the very older vines and the very younger vines that took most of the damage. But the vines that were about 5 to 18 years old seemed to do really well. But we did have quite a few of our growers had to cut some of the vines down and retrain. So that was a three-year process almost. So, you know, in 20, um, our harvest was down really low. 21 was also low due to weather. And then, of course, 22, we're just starting to come out of it, but we're also in a drought. So it's not producing as heavy a fruit. When you see how certain varieties respond to the dramatic shifting weather, does that make you want to focus more on certain styles or certain varieties, certain blends, and maybe cut others out of the program? Um, it's funny you say that you always have these great ideas and, you know, um, but I, I, let me diverge from that question for just a moment. So p- part of the answer is that I always make wine on paper first <clears throat> every year. It's cheaper to make wine on paper. Um, and if you don't understand what that means, it just basically means I try to sketch out the vineyards, the tonnages. I know where some of the programs are going to go to, but what do I need to do? This is some of the trials I want to make. Then you have to make that uh, call when you start seeing the quality as it comes in. Yes, the, the weather does want me to, to scream sometimes, but I don't think it's ever uh, made me want to drop a particular program. It just makes me wonder about the, you know, uh, this last summer we had the hottest July in record, you know, and uh, um, 
so it's like, okay, what are, what are we doing? You know, how, how, how is that affecting that? Do we need to shift the canopy? How is it the canopy management to keep the moisture in, you know, keep the sun off the fruit? What do we need to do? So, um, yeah, it, it can be frustrating. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, mother nature is always going to throw you a curveball. You've got a lot of growers on the high plains and in other parts of the state, I presume, mm-hmm. but tell me a little bit about your estate vineyard. Oh, it's wonderful here. Um, the uh, right in the middle of planting, um, more than doubling our acreage here. We're, uh, uh, it, as a matter of fact, we're planting again tomorrow. Um, you know, we've been planting this week. Uh, we're in the middle of a four-year growth phase here on the estate vineyard. Uh, we're in year two of four uh, this year. Uh, we've, we're going to go from 45 to 90 acres. And then, uh, and actually, we were just discussing this this spring. There, we picked up another piece of property here just across the road from our estate, and we think we're going to develop about 10 acres over there. So we'll be about 100 acres in the next three years. Next five years, 100 producing acres are roughly, hopefully, about five, 450 to 500 tons of estate fruit. So that's going to put catapult us up into probably the largest estate vineyard winery in the state, or, or if not the largest, it'll, it will be pretty close. Um, and that's just for estate-grown fruit, so the potential of a state label on there. We're planning uh, – Dr. Becker was the first one to plant Viognier in the state of Texas a number of years ago. We're replanting Viognier here on the property for the first time in uh, almost two decades. And then we've planted some uh, – probably the biggest decision was that we're actually going to yank out the older Cabernet and Merlot and replant with uh, Rhone varietals in the very far back vineyard. So. That um, that vineyard is uh, about thirty. Well, it was 1992 to 1995 is when it was planted. So, so it's um, time to just to production refer, wise, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, had you had Viognier that came out, and now you're replanting it, or you're just adding to what was already there? We're, we're actually we had Viognier, and the Viognier was actually yanked out uh, several years before I arrived, um, and uh, Dr. Becker really wanted to to replant it and. Uh, we had several environmental challenges that we had to overcome. One of them, which is flocks run, finding some uh, resistant rootstock, uh, which is ironic since Texas is the one that supplied right. the flocks resistant rootstock to the European replant in the uh, last century. Um, the, uh, uh, the thing that we can't get away for, uh, can't get away with here is a complete hundred percent organic or biodynamic vineyard. Um, the environmental pressures are just too great on, some of those things like the powdery mildew index and things. But what we do here is an integrated pest management program so that we're not excessively using anything. Um, um, For the most part, you know, the Bordeaux mixture, which is uh, one of the uh, uh, probably the easiest things to use, a blend of sulfur and copper um, that take care of quite a a host of things. But uh, one of the things with Phylloxera was, uh, you know, like I said, trying to find the, the right root stock for the right area. After this four-year planting program, mm-hmm. will the estate be completely planted as much acreage as you, you have available to plant? No, no. Oh, you still have more? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. The, um, our uh, vineyard extends from Yensky back to Lukenbach Road. Okay. So, yeah. So it, we've got quite a bit in the, in the back. That's that great. We could, we could plant if we wanted to. We've got the water, too. So, But I, don't, I think um, you know, 90 to 100 acres is a lot to take care of. Sure. <laughs> So. Tell me what you mean we have the water, because we all want water right now. Uh, yes. Uh, well, we, uh, we are very fortunate in a line here uh, in this part of the, the county that, um, and where the aquifer is. that We've got a couple of 400-gallon-minute uh, um, wells, that, you know, deep wells. Uh, we have not stressed them. 
you know, we try not to water unless we absolutely need to. But in the last two years, that's not been an option. It's been watered. And we're all um, literally crossing our fingers <laughs> and praying for rain. Um, but uh, we do have the well capacity for what we currently have. And, and uh, we can certainly, uh, if we ever decided to grow beyond that, I think we could because we would have the water to support it. But um, right now, since we started this a few years ago, ordering the grapevines, literally three and a half, almost four years ago, you're on almost a two-year backlog on vines. We were not in the middle of a drought. We had plenty of rain, and our aquifer was pretty high. So that's probably the only thing that will really stymie the growth pattern. If if we continue this trend, we may have to, to readjust you know, our thoughts and growth past what we have now. Maybe it'll rain someday, too. Oh, it can only help. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more specifically about Cabernet Sauvignon. This is kind of my question du jour for a lot of people I've been interviewing lately Mm -hmm. because I feel like people have radical opinions, pro or con. Yes, absolutely. And I want to know from you because you have made a lot of award-winning Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. What's the secret? What's the magic sauce? Um, being a, a smart Alec Irish winemaker, I think would be. No, I'm, <laughs> Not so everyone can be so blessed. <laughs> First of all, I'm as Californian as they come. To call myself Irish is almost a, a joke into itself. Um, the uh, uh, patience. You really do have to have patience. With Cabernet is a workhorse of a grape. It always has been. It's um, probably the best kept secret about Napa Valley is it's the easiest wine there to make. You know, it really. Um, you figure out how much environmental abuse that grape can take and still produce a good wine. It really is a great wine to teach somebody how to make wine. And, and it's done quite frequently. I think here, um, learning over the years about Cabernet, learning how it expresses itself at what, you know, what, you know, uh, fermentation temperatures do to it, what different yeasts do to it, different programs, um, cooler versus warmer ferments, you know, how to, uh, to bring forward, you know, how to deal with things like, you know, Cabernet is also notorious for pink berry. Everything else can be fully ripe and suddenly you got like, you know, three or 4% of the berries are pink and just not ripening up, but you've got to, you've got to grab it. It's time to harvest phenolically. It's time to harvest. Um, and what, what to do with that, you know, tannin management, um, all, all of the decisions that you have to make. And every single one of those decisions has a pitfall on to itself, you know, but I do believe Texas can grow and has grown and does produce good Bordeaux varietals. Um, one of the things that one of the very first articles I read in 2012 was another wine person with, with an opinion uh, stating that Texas was the wrong place to grow Cabernet. And uh, so I was like, well, that sounds like a challenge and see if they're, tr- if they're right. I mean, I read the arguments all sounded good. They were not just blowing off steam. They were literally laid out a, a really good, um, argument about why they didn't think Texas was the right area. But after seeing the soils, especially up in the high plains and here in the northern part of, of uh, the hill country, um, I was just felt like that may not be true. And I think, I think we've proven that over the last decade. We've, we've produced a, quite a few award-winning Cabernets. From many vintages, so it's yeah. not like yeah. you just got lucky that one year. Right. Well, I think I got lucky every year. <laughs> Yeah, I actually had a quote that you said, Cab is a workhorse, a great wine to learn on. You can make good wine and make many mistakes, and it's a very forgiving grape. It is a very forgiving grape. Absolutely it is. Um, Pinot Noir, not so much. Yeah. You know, Pinot Noir is a very uh, temperamental grape, um, but 
makes a beautiful wine when you when you get it right. Is there a problematic grape that you think is uh, equally troublesome in Texas? <laughs> Um, depends on, yes, it, it's any grape that comes in at 4 a.m. and I'm not awake. <laughs> so, but no, I don't think so. Um, not for, not for what I deal with. Uh, you know, I do have a couple of Rhone varietals that you, that do, uh, take some kid gloves. One of them is Kunwa's, uh, or, or Kunwa's, uh, some people say it, but the, it's a Rhone varietal. It's a very obscure Rhone varietal. It's normally used in a blender, um, and normally used mostly in, in the Chateauneuf de Pop area. But we do a, a single varietal bottling of it and have it a couple of times, and we get it from a brilliant set of uh, grape growers. Um, Farmhouse? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. So so Nick Seaton and Anthony Ferguson are, are just wonderful folks and, and really know what they're doing, and they produce such beautiful fruit. And it's probably the easiest thing in the world is to tease Nick Seaton which is a horrible habit I have, but, and he's a very forgiving man, thankfully, <laughs> but, uh, wonderful. Uh, they, they grow some great Rhone varietals up there in the, the Kunwa, the first year we, we got it from them. And, you know, and Kunwa's, uh, is a very light colored grape. Uh, so like a real burgundy, it's a very, very light color on its own. And the color doesn't deepen until the vine gets older. So it deepens a little bit. So you've got to uh, be prepared that it's a red wine that's quite light in, in uh, color. Body is medium, so it belies, the color belies the body, uh, as is most the case with, with grapes. It, they, uh, but it, it's got such a fruit punch to it, that not fruit punch, but a punch of fruit uh, to it, that uh, it, it brings out a lot of these, these brilliant red fruit notes, especially in blends along with Syrah and Grenache, some of these more tannic varietals and this Kunwa has the lighter tannin so it, it helps mellow that astringent quality that those grapes have but on its own we tasted out of the barrel and we decided this will be fun just a bottle on its own for fun just a couple hundred cases here for the winery you got to hand sell it to people teach them that this is a varietal you're not normally going to find try it and it flew out the door uh, people grabbed it and oh i was looking for a pinot i think i like this and i i can't fault them for that but i can't say oh it's the pinot substitute it isn't you know, there is no substitute for Pinot Noir, but Kunwa on its own is a brilliant grape. And just this last week, we were up supporting the the Lubbock Uncorked, the, the wine industry up there, and we poured Kunwa at that, that event. And we that was the first one we sold out of. Is that so, right? Yeah. I like it. I have to admit, I haven't had as many single varietal red mm-hmm. as I have uh, rosé yes. from the yeah. Kunwa. So oh, I, I enjoy both. Rose. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. I have a couple of wines that I want to mention that you've made, mm-hmm. and I'd love for you to tell me what makes them unique, special, or sure. just your your initial thoughts. I have three. Um, the first is the 2019 Barbera from Talent Vineyards. Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful wine, Barbera. Um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you fall in love with that wine every year all over again. You really do. Um it, it's a, a brilliant wine. It is very light in tannins. So Barbera by itself is not going to last 30 years in a bottle by any long shot. But boy, when it's ripe, phenolically ripe, uh, it's a wine that just, it's very seductive. You put that in a glass and there is not any food that doesn't go with it. And here's the brilliant part about it is it doesn't need food. You can sit down and have a glass of wine with good company and it makes almost a golden moment in life. On its own, but uh, Drew, uh, who is an absolutely f- great farmer, his vineyard sits um, 
up in, in Mason sits on uh, hickory sands primarily. So these old, you know, 350 million plus year old deteriorated granitic sands, um, no flocks can grow in that. You know, that's, it's uh, on its own. It's a, a wonderful barrier. Yeah. Um, and he uh, just has a very deft hand with, with that. And that Barbera has produced, and we used to have the vineyard right next to him. Uh, just a mile down the road, and we grew Barbera up there too at the old Peter Prairie, Peter's Prairie um, Vineyard, and the Barbera off of both of those. We we had made uh, Barbera early on, and it had been a number of years between because I was using the Barbera in some of the Italian blends that we were doing, and and, uh, and some other non traditional blends because that Barbera, that velvet that offers it, and then um, a couple of years ago we we're like, you know, we haven't done a Barbera in a while. Let's let's look at the the Barbera from nineteen, and uh, so we deliberately put it into some French oak, brand new French oak, a little bit, and some brand new American oak to just to try. And we ended up blending them back together and it made this beautiful wine. So, nice. and it's done quite well. Um, it know, has. In know. fact, it's the most awarded Texas wine of 2022. Yes. Yeah, it is. And, um, and it's the most consumed at my house. Right? <laughs> what I was a little surprised by is to see on the text sheet that it's got some RS. Yeah, it's just 4.5, 4.5 grams. So it's just below human threshold of sweet. Yeah. And that's not uncommon, especially with some of these uh, really um, mellower varietals. Um, you can have a complete fermentation and still have RS. You know, there, of those six sugars that are in there, three of them are readily fermentable. And one of them you can struggle with to, to get it to ferment all the way. But when you get over five grams per liter or 0.5 RS, um, that's when you start to taste sweet on the receptors of your tongue. Um, below that, you're really not. You're tasting fruit. If you're tasting sweet, could be oak, could be fruit, could be a combo. One of the brilliant things, and you'll you'll see it when you see on the text sheets of some of these iconic Cabernets too, is you're you're between two and three and a half grams of RS um, in there, which is still considered dry. Yeah. Anything below five is considered dry. Anything below 0.5 is considered bone dry and and doesn't always service the wine well. But with that, you get a roundness on the palate that allows the fruit to express, the tannins to mellow, and the acid to blend together, and it creates the back palate, that finish. So for me, when I'm looking at a wine, when I'm judging a wine, I'm, I'm judging in a very simple method, because um, I only have 10 fingers. I can't count to 100. So I, I judge the palate front, middle, and back, and I assign a numerical score to that uh, one one and two for the front palate, three and four for the middle, and five and six for the back. And then I'll try through the lifetime of the wine in the barrel when I go through tasting the wines. Um, I start writing my notes and then the scoring and see if the scoring changes. And that helps me two and a half years later when I'm, or three years later, you know, we, we keep our wines in barrels for, for quite some time here. And that was one of the things that I, probably the biggest influence I had, honestly, was starting to age the wine to, to its full maturity. When I come back then, a few years later, I'm able to go back through the notes and see, okay, this is what I felt like when it was young, when it was this, you know, this, this very uh, awkward young wine to uh, starting to show the maturity to what I feel is ready to be, to be bottled. And then that helps me when I come back to, to do some cross-blending too. You know? Smart. Yeah. I like that. Wine number two. Mm-hmm. 2017, you mm-hmm. need a blends Cabernet Sauvignon. Tell me about that one. Oh, that was fun. So uh, a good friend, uh, of mine who was a mentor early on in my career, Corey Beck, who's the president of Coppola Wines, um, and uh, called my boss, Dr. Becker, one day and said, hey, we noticed you do a claret, and we do a claret, and we would like to get together and do a claret together. And they were very excited, and 
Um, Corey forgot to mention that he knew I was the winemaker here, so but he didn't forget. He just assumed everybody would talk, and then the the buzz was they're coming for a meeting to see if we can do a blend with Coppola, do a fifty percent Texas, fifty percent California blend, label it as such, you know, do this just for fun, and it really was just for a fun project, um, and it was very flattering too. Um, the, uh, the day that. Corey and his uh, team members arrived. I was on the bottling line with my guys solving one of those little tiny hiccups that usually happen at the, the most bottling. Op- yeah, that most opportune time. I think the boring, the most boring day on the bottling line is the best day in the world. It means nothing exciting has happened. Um, so I, I was running about five minutes behind for the meeting. I walked over there and I opened the door and I was like, tell me you got your shots before you came into the state. I- <laughs> And I thought, I, I thought Dr. Becker just looked at me like, why, why do you have to be that way? It's so difficult. <laughs> yeah. So, no, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. We took, so the idea behind it was I got to go through and taste all the wines from California and here, and I matched up. And um, uh, one of the caveats the, for the agreement was that I got to, to blend the wine. And, uh, um, and I, I, at that time I didn't really care, but it was, Corey had asked if I would mind doing that, if I, you, you blend the wine. So they sent us all these samples of wines from the different Sonoma, uh, vineyards. And I was already familiar with most of those vineyards to begin with. So if I took the blend was, you know, if I used 30% Texas Cabernet, then I used 30% California Cabernet. So it took me a long time to make that blend. I wanted to make sure that it was equal 50, 50 to the cab and the, uh, I think it was Cab, Cab Franck, and Merlot in there that ended up being in the final blend. And was that just a one-year project, or yeah. did you? Yeah. yeah, just one time. Yeah, and we fun. we made quite a bit of it. We sold quite a bit, but then we held back some so that we could release it later here at the tasting room. And fun. Yes, it was a lot of fun. And 2017, great year for Texas. Oh, absolutely! It was bad year for Houston, but a great year for the grapes yeah. and the high plants. Yeah. Um, the final wine, and and to tell you the truth, I'm not sure where I got this information because I didn't actually see this wine on your website. It may <laughs> okay. be from one of your recent tastings. Uh-huh. From Facebook. Um, the 2017 Simeon from Bingham Vineyards. Oh, yeah. That was a fun project. That was me having a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> so 2017 was extremely ripe here. And Semillon, which is a wonderful white Bordeaux varietal, uh, it, it, it does blend very well with Sauvignon Blanc. And it also does a very nice dessert style if you let it go uh, and do a, um, a late late harvest style dessert wine but we uh harvested it i think it was about 24 24 and a half bricks I, I tend to go uber ripe on a lot of fruit because i'm looking for phenolic ripeness so the sugar is the secondary concern until i decide that i'm smelling and tasting now i do look at the chemistry i just don't ignore it you know that's also extremely important and i actually default to looking at that first and foremost and then start on the phenolic end of it it just turned out that it was just such a gorgeous wine. And then I had about 10 barrels. And I was like, you know, the French and sometimes the Aussies make a gorgeous white Bordeaux that's been barrel-aged for a number of years. And I was like, I want to try that. So I hit the wine <laughs> right next to my office in, fr- in plain view of everyone. And uh, we aged it for 40, 44 or 46 months before we bottled it. And it was barrel-aged the whole time, self-topped. And uh, um, it was funny because about two and a half, almost three years into it, all of a sudden the door of my office opens up and it's Rachel, the assistant winemaker and the analogist. And she just gives me this look like, 
and said, looked at me and she goes, do you even have a plan for that? She goes, do you know there's still 2019 Semyon back there? I was like, yes, please don't tell anybody where it's at. You know, and then it was about 42 months, 41 or 42 months into it. Dr. Becker found it. <laughs> and he's like, is this, is this labeled correctly? And I was like, yes, sir, it is. He's like, we need to taste this. And I was like, no, we really don't. I said, it's a very bad wine. It's horrible. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. He's like, oh, no, no, we're tasting it now. <laughs> so he tasted it. It was so good. We actually have another follow-up on the 2019 vintage of that. It's still out in barrel being aged currently. Wow. Yeah. We did. We bottled it, and we were, you know, it was a small amount, and everybody's like, how are we going to sell this? You know, people are even going to be used to it. I was like, look, taste it. It is definitely a wine for food, I said, or a slice of hard cheese, you know, whatever you want, but it, it we sold all, uh, there was 245 cases that we ended up bottling and they went out the door quickly. It took less than nine months for it wow. to disappear. Yeah. It was uh, accepted very well and it went into a couple of nice restaurants. There were a couple of chefs that were very happy to have something that expressive. And then I told John that I noticed that the alcohol was quite high on this wine. It was because it was extremely ripe. Um, and yes, fruit. for a white wine, but if uh, it was not hot, yeah, so it was in balance, and that's probably um, my my biggest thing about wine is balance. I, I really I could care less what the final alcohol is. I'm not making alcohol. I'm making wine. Alcohol is a legal requirement to lay, label. It is an adult beverage. I'm not encouraging you to to go out and drink for the alcohol, but it is. Uh, it to me, it's secondary. If it's not dominant, then I'm making the balances there. You, um, you're not going to smell it initially, you're not going to taste it, it's not going to be hot on the palate, then you're fine. Whether that's 13% or <clears throat> almost 17%. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But uh, that wine carried itself very well. What you're gaining in the oak, and the probably the trickiest thing to learn was one of the things, uh, Chardonnay, Semillon, Sauvignon Blanc, Viognier, they will all do this. Um, when you put a good white wine into 100% new oak, like Chardonnay. That's probably the thing that most people are going to be familiar with. Um, six to nine months into it, you're going to start tasting all of those toasted flavors. That's going to be almost overwhelming. And your first reaction is, I've overdone it. We need to yank it out. I can't have more oak. And That's the wrong thing to do. That will guarantee that you will only taste toasted notes in that wine for the remainder of its bottle life. You leave it in, um, wine to me, like a brand new Chardonnay in brand new French oak, needs to stay a minimum of 24 months. You go through this gangly period, you get this period where it's like super toasted, um, no fruit, no florals, and then it suddenly blooms about 18 to 21 months. It suddenly comes out again. You've kept it in a reductive atmosphere. You have protected those floral components. Those terpenes are, are tight in there. And then suddenly a little introduction of oxygen and they break apart and you get all of those notes back and you've protected the wine. And that wine has been made in such a manner that it will stay really true to its varietal and true to its character for a number of years in that bottle. Um, and that's, that's the real magic about Oak um, is you get those interplay with the, the tannins, you, the, the, um, the benefit of aging in there and then the slow oxygen absorption during the aging process. But right. yeah. 
You've got me craving a white burgundy right now. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and, and when you find a good one, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah if you can afford it. My goodness. I know. I know. Right. Well, you, you've brought up some of your thoughts on oak. Tell me, mm-hmm. you said that, that was maybe one of the biggest changes you made. So 10 years ago, were most of the wines done in stainless or a lot of neutral oak and you introduced more new or just tell me about your whole theories and or, sure. or your, your whole approach around oak. Sure. We, 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 and we have always done a little bit in stainless and, and yes, we did some then. The, the oak program wasn't huge when I got here, um, but they were also turning around a lot of wines pretty young, you know, they had a lot of demand. So and, and there's a different way to make wine when you need to release them young versus when you can age them. So it wasn't that they were producing bad wines at all. They weren't. They were just a different style. And, uh, and a very accepted style. It was a much, much more fruit-forward style. And I, I still like fruit-forward wines, and I still do that. And most of my style choice can be cataloged as fruit-forward. Um, the aging process that I like is the protection of the wine and then showing what a mature wine can do. You're never going to know the maturity of the wine industry until you have those mature wines, until you can show that these are vintage, these are true classic vintage wines. Um, and that it's a slow process because, you know, when I got here, they were buying a couple hundred barrels from a different, um, from A&K barrels, um, wonderful American oak. We switched over to a Demtos American barrel. It comes from the same family farm in southern Missouri that, that's been producing barrels for 150, 180 years, same family, wonderful um, area. And then we also added some uh, uh, Allier uh, French oak, so forest designated, very, very tight grain. So if you're going to age a wine for more than 18 months, you need a very tight grain barrel uh, in there. And that, that has a lot to do with the oxygen as well as the, the uptake of tannin and, and toasted notes. Um, so we slowly started adding, and as we grew, our fruit contracts grew. We had to grow the barrel program. Well, then I started saving the oak. Instead of every three or four years, I started saving it five, six, seven years to, to keep that neutral barrel. I wanted more neutral oak in there. You know, I generally, as a general rule of thumb, don't like something more than 20 to 25% new oak by the final blending. You know, when I say blending, I'm not just talking about blending Merlot with Cab and Cab Franc, but the, the same cabs together. When it, well, some will age in new, some will age in neutral. You know, or some will be stainless, you know, a small amount just to see if I can keep that fruit. But, but the oak, uh, is, so it takes a number of years to get that aging program going and increasing the volume and getting that going. So it, it's a lot of planning. And a huge capital investment absolutely, by all those barrels. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, it, it, we're very fortunate to work for a successful winery that ha- has uh, a good uh, cash management, you know, we um it's probably one of the few wineries that I've worked for that actually it was all, all, uh, we can only buy it if we can pay for it. Can't take that credit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very stable. A lot of, uh, big fans of Becker. I actually <laughs> saw a Facebook group called yeah. something like, we think Becker is the best winery in Texas. Join this group if you agree. <laughs> and there are a bunch of members. Maybe it's all your wine club, which is huge by That's the way awesome. I hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a fair size. Yeah. That's great, and and you do fun cruises. We do. We're actually getting ready to uh, to do uh, Bordeaux this summer in July, uh, July of twenty twenty three. So we um, we're doing uh, uh, six days on the Ama uh, Ama waterways. Is our our cruise? We're a wine host. We've done multiple wine host cruises with them. Uh, we've done the uh, Rhine from Amsterdam up to Basel, Switzerland. We've done the 
Uh, this, this last year, we did two, two cruises in 2022. We did a July cruise on uh, the colors of Provence. So we started up in Burgundy, went down through Lyon, all the way down to Arles. Um, and uh, that was a wonderful, wonderful trip. And um, uh, in November, uh, just this past November, we did the Upper Danube. So we uh, started in uh, Budapest and then went up through uh Austria. And one of the wonderful things is I'd never been to the Wachau. So I just had wonderful wines from there, but to see, to smell, to experience. And it was latter part of November, right before Thanksgiving. So it started snowing one day. We were in Linz. The Christmas markets were open. You talk about just a romantic time. And, um, and then my wife and I were walking around. The, most of the uh, tour group had left to go to Strasbourg. And we stayed to walk around the town and go to the Christmas market. And uh, the funniest thing was these uh, 20-something uh, Austrian kids who were all like six foot six, just, you know, sculpted blonde hair, blue-eyed, brown hair, green-eyed, you know, very happy. And they just walk around and they're in a pack. And then all of a sudden they're doing these shots at the Christmas market and they're doing this chant shot. And then all of a sudden one of them, you turn around and one of them comes running up and he's dressed as a clown and he's got a, a twister game, the old-fashioned twister game. Yeah. And he throws it on the ground and... <laughs> Guys doing shots, doing twister. That sounds like a party. <laughs> it was. It was awesome. And I was just sitting there looking and watching. And I look over, and this other guy who's about my age, Austrian gentleman, just looks over, looks at me. And he's just like, yeah. <laughs> it's another day in Austria. Yeah, exactly. Another day. But uh, we had uh, a wonderful time. We got to um, uh, meet a lot of great people. Um, you know, uh, it was just fantastic. So we very, so nice. very fortunate. Yeah, those, those cruises are very nice. And we're doing. Uh, we're actually going back to um, uh, to the Mosul and the Rhine in 2024, in November 2024. Uh, we're doing a trip that'll start in uh, Luxembourg, and then it'll go up the Mosul, and then hit the Rhine, and we'll go up the Rhine to Mosul, Switzerland. Oh, nice. Again, so I'm going to make a Riesling this year uh, in order to have a Texas Riesling on that trip to, for a little fun comparison. I like it. Yeah, Who's yeah. growing your Riesling? I'm going to try to steal some from Jet Wilmeth if okay. he lets me. <laughs> Notice to Jet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Becker has a very large production and I guess is the second largest winery in Texas. I believe so. Is it possible that Texas can grow all the grapes that Becker needs for full production? Yes, as a matter of fact. So probably the, the biggest... Um, complaint I've seen through the years is that uh, our iconoclast wine wasn't all Texas. And, uh, and the um, uh, so five, six years ago, we decided that we were going to make that change to all Texas. And I, I know this is hard to believe, but it does take five or six years for the grapes to produce. You know, three to five is what people say. And in all reality, it's five to seven years before a vineyard's fully productive. And you can't just turn on a dime. You know, I can't just say, I'm going to have 500 tons of this fruit next year. I've got to find the, if it's available, if it's not, I got to find a grower that can plant it and grow it. And we, you know, in partnership. Um, so it, it, it's taken a number of years. So we, our icon program is all, uh, after 2020 vintage is going to all be Texas. And that was probably the biggest, uh, you know, investment in time and, and energy stuff, but it, it, it's the mark of a, uh, immature to mature, um, industry area. And there is nothing wrong with being all, you know, wanting to be all Texas and everything and being very, very proud of that. It's because we got damn good fruit and, and we do make good wines, but um, we also had a, a market to support ourselves. And I think the smartest thing was the business plan. So that icon program built a lot of what this winery is. 
Um, so, uh, and then to take it to all Texas is just the mark of, to me, of, of great success. Tell me more about that label. It's the icon a, label? The, yeah, right behind you. Okay, the middle one, right? Right. Yeah, that brown and light So tan. the iconoclast. Yes. That's a cab Yeah, we have, we have a cab in there, and then we have a Merlot. Okay, so yeah. they're two different wines. Right, right. Gotcha. Yeah, and they're two different, slightly different colored labels to, to delineate. And so we're redoing that label, too, in honor of the fact that we're going to be doing that. So cool. um, I know I, uh, I tease. Um, I always say that looks like Teddy Roosevelt, but it's actually, a, a, I believe, a self-portrait of Tony Bell, who's uh, the artist responsible for a lot of the artwork on the, on the labels. Cool. That's one of your larger production Two of your larger production wines? It, it is. Okay, it is so that that's, and the Tempranillo and the Chardonnay and the Claret are, are all very large production uh, wines. So a lot, most of our wines are very small production wines. They're very, you know, they're six to 900 cases each kind of thing. But the larger ones like our Tempranillo, which we have a Tempranillo Reserve and a Tempranillo, regular Tempranillo, which is our distribution market Tempranillo. So we, we, we purchase about 180, 190 tons of Tempranillo from throughout the state to, to make both of those wines. Plus the Tariga Nacional that I use uh, as a little blender in the, in the Tempranillo. Um, and then uh, the, the Cabernet for the Icon Cab was the biggest challenge, the Cab and the Merlot, getting, getting enough together. So we, we finally got enough planted and enough into maturity that we're able to do that. Um, but then the Claret has always been a Texas, you know, blend of the, the Bordeaux varietals available in Texas. And then, of course, the the uh, well, we also do a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, so, and there there were very few sources of Sauvignon Blanc mm-hmm. when I first got here, but now there are about four or five vineyards that produce a, a heady amount of Sauvignon Blanc. The Becker website mentions that Becker is the largest purchaser of premium Texas grapes in the state. Yes. Yeah, so, two years ago, when we sat down and and started looking at that, we were we were looking at um, at that time we were we were purchasing about twelve and a half percent of all of the available fruit in in Texas. Yeah, um, so we we have we have a ferocious appetite for grapes. <laughs> I love that you're so planning the, more vineyards, vineyards too. Because well, and it really is a, a great investment, especially here in this, you know, for the the estate. I mean, if we get a full production of 500 tons, that's going to feed quite a few of our our programs, or help feed quite a few of the programs because we're 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 planning, you know, Grenache, Syrah, you know, uh, Moved, Cab Franc, Tempranillo, Viognier, Chardonnay, um, you know, Barbera. Uh, I'm trying to get a little bit of uh, Charbono to, to plant. So, Yeah, don't skimp out on that Barbera anymore. We want the single varietal Barbera yeah. going forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is another potentially touchy subject, but are you still doing the for sale in Texas only? Oh, yes. And I did, uh, yes, um, on the uh, couple of labels because it has absolutely nothing to do with fruit coming from outside of the state. It has everything to do with one thing, the legal... D- the legal cola that allows you to sell across state line. And if you don't want to, you don't have to. You can for sale in state in any state of the union uh, as a winery. And I love the, the misinformation that came out several years ago about that. So I was like, oh, yeah, we'll just make all Texas wine and put it for sale state only. There you go. There. Here you go. <laughs> so it actually is Texas wine. <laughs> yeah, most of them are. Now, we do when we do make like the icon the icon wine or and in 2013 we had a few few wines that were not texas to save the market and this is where i think the core of that criticism arose from the 2014 season when we we released several of the wines that were not all texas so we took texas off the label and we put for sale in state only yes um because we did not do an interstate commerce 
uh, cola on there. In order to do that, you would have to have it appellated. And American appellated versus no appellation at all. Really, there's not. Um, you're only allowed to appellate if you are from that state or from a conjoining state. Like I could appellate New Mexico wine here in Texas, make it in Texas and call it New Mexico because we share a state state border. But if I buy grapes from Washington or Oregon or California or you know uh, Missouri, um, I cannot appellate from there because I don't have a contiguous border to them in, in Texas. So the American appellation is for that. But for sale in state only, it covers two major things. One, it's not from the state and you're not a cola and you're not shipping out of state. I can't ship those wines to our wine club. I can't distribute them out of state because there's no interstate commerce cola on there um, by the Fed. Um, or uh, it is you're a small winery. And there are a couple of our neighbors here in Texas that were always labeled for sale in state only and were 100% Texas. And I always felt bad when that argument came out. It's like they don't want to ship out of state. They're making a 1,000 cases and selling it here. Why would they have to get a fed cola? Now they're free. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it, it's the easiest thing to do. You just you know, supply them with your artwork and what the wine is. And they tell if it meets the interstate commerce standard and they approve it and you're done. There's no fee involved. That's probably a great service, actually, that, that – are one of the great services that our government does, especially for business. But so it, it, it can be both of those. Now, for us, 99% of the time if for sale in state is because it is not 100% Texas. And uh, hopefully we won't have another freeze like 13. And since we've already planned and taken the five to now almost seven years to get to where we're going with the uh, ICON, that it will all be state. And we, that's where we're redoing label for the ICON for our next vintage. And it's not a touchy subject. I mean, it's just, it, it's what's required. You know, mm-hmm. there's a state and federal requirement to produce alcohol, and I, I have no choice but to follow the letter of the law. Yeah. So, and when, I, I love it when people argue about things that are like, that they just know. I was like, well, good, good for you. Please don't do that. You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Indeed. I don't want to end on that note. I no, want to ask no, you kind no. of a final question sure, about... Sure. About your next 10 years in Texas, mm-hmm. how do you think the industry is um, moving forward positively? And then also, what do you think we need to do to really take it to the next level in Texas in the next 10 years? Well, that's a, that's a long... So we've got another hour? Sure. <laughs> Let's open some of this wine. <laughs> oh, that, oh, yeah. I, I'm sure I'll make really good, good conversation after that. Um, first of all, yes, I think Texas is on a great track. Are you kidding me? We have world-class wines, and I'm not the only one producing them. I'm be foolish and very egotistical to say so. Um, there, there are some really good people. And when I taste good wines, I think one of the things that, that I I always think, Did, this is really good. God, do I make wine that good? And how do I do that? I mean, always. And, and it's not jealousy. It's almost a little bit of like almost imposter syndrome. You know, like, did I really? I mean, is that, you know you're constantly challenging yourself. So you can find that. I can go out and taste wines for my neighbors and find those wines. That's a great sign. That's a sign that people are doing great. We're making wonderful fruit and we're making wonderful decisions. We just don't have enough fruit. We need more vineyards. You know, and yes, I think in the next 10 years, we're going to see that. I think we're going to see an uh, equilibrium met with demand and fruit. And, um, and I think the next big step is out-of-state distribution on a broad scale by many different wineries to get people to know. There are enough people that have been coming as tourists now that, you know, the word is out slightly. 
and we do have a couple of neighbors who they make it a point to sell wine in like New York or in Atlanta or Chicago, you know, in a, in a limited amount uh, there to give people some choices. But I think the real key and the key to our success is convincing Texas restaurants to carry Texas wine and not apologize for it. Um, there's nothing to apologize for, but it is an uphill fight with a lot of restaurants in the state. It's not an uphill fight with this Texas consumer. And Texans love to support Texas. They're, and, and that is one of the best things that I, I ever came across. I thought this was wow. I was like, God, can you imagine if California or Oregon's or Oregonians felt the same way and just 110% went behind there? I was like, we'd all be sitting pretty. <laughs> but, you know, the Texans love to support Texas products. And, um, and now we just need to convince, um, you know, I was in a restaurant that bragged about everything from Texas except their wine list. And they not have one, did not have one wine from Texas. And when I asked, you know, and they're like, well, the, you know, Texas doesn't produce good wine. I said, well, here's my card. Why don't you come up and see if I can change your mind? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Somehow it's the people in our own state that are the, the hardest to convince sometimes. Right. Yeah. But no, I do. I, I have great feelings. I think, you know, there's a lot of good talent out there. Um, there's a lot of good people that have been working in this industry for a long time. I've had a lot of really good influence on it. And I, and I really see we're starting to attract out-of-state talent too. people who want to come here to make wine that have been making wine in other places. So that's a great sign. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I'm very optimistic for it. Well, thank you for your time and expertise oh, and all you've contributed to this place and this industry. I've enjoyed every minute of it, actually. You know, all the frustrations as well as the uh, accolades. And the cruises. And the cruises, yeah. (laughs) I think one of the best things I enjoy is, uh, honestly, is uh, my wife and I get to sit down in the evening and have a glass of wine. It's just like, "Ah, this is fun. You know, I I made this. Here, have a glass. (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah, she's always been the one I wanted to impress the most. How sweet. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you from her any longer. No, no. <laughs> I appreciate your time. She's just going to make me mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that you didn't say that you want to say? I think a shout out to, to all my fellow wine people in Texas and a big thank you. Just wonderful support, wonderful people. Um, and it really, it, uh, it's been very gratifying to be able to work in an industry with as many good people. Thanks, John. Stay tuned for Demerits and Gold Stars. I'm just back from a great weekend in Waco where I attended Rootstock Wine Fest and had a great time. I saw a bunch of Texas wine lovers and podcast listeners there too. So my gold stars go to Sarah Holder, the festival director, to Joey Bagnasco and the rest of the team at Valley Mills Vineyards, and to all the festival volunteers for handling every last little detail, from curating the list of wines that was poured that day to hanging the twinkle lights for the VIP dinner. Speaking of the VIP dinner, it was an incredibly picturesque and delicious wine-paired dinner that was set up on the Washington Street Bridge that stretches over the Brazos River, and it was just a dreamy night. So huge congrats to the whole team. And thanks to James Smith of Chateau Wright for assembling my tent, which by some miracle didn't get blown into the Brazos. It was very, very windy. And that's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Phil Lopez of Silver Spur Winery in Heiko. Get in touch. You can send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out the episodes that you might have missed. There's a lot of good stuff in every one. 
If this podcast resonates with you, please consider supporting it by going to the website and clicking support the podcast. That's where you can donate virtual Texas wine, which is actually just a donation to my podcast expenses. I really appreciate it. You can do that at thisistexaswine.com. And finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Texas Wine Lover is here to help wine lovers discover more Texas wine, but they're also a resource for the wine industry. They've got a complete list of all the vineyards in our state. So if you're a winemaker looking for more grapes, use that list to find out which vineyards are growing the grapes you're interested in. That's at TXWineLover.com. Cheers, y'all.